2: Radio waves, radio waves, radio waves, she sees radio waves, she sees radio waves.
0: Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien and today is Friday the 28th of September, 2018. Each fortnight we speak with a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science, or particle physics. And today's feature interview is with DSLR astrophotographer Doug Ingram of Nightscapades fame. And he will encourage us to dust off our DSLR cameras and learn how to start snapping the night sky. And for more experienced astrophotographers, he has some tips and challenges. And that's followed by Dr. Ian Astroblog-Musgrave, who is a university toxicology and pharmacology lecturer, an amateur astronomer and astrophotographer, and he's going to tell us, what's up doc? what's up in the night, morning and evening skies for the next two weeks, and he takes us on an astronomical tangent. And we finish up with some Astrophys News highlights, featuring the latest discoveries in this golden age of astronomy and space science. So let's talk to Doug first, I think he's near Sydney, Australia. Hello, Doug.
2: Hello, Brendan.
0: Today we are speaking with astrophotographer Doug Ingram. So before you tell us about your astrophotography, Doug, can you tell us about going to high school near the Lucas Heights nuclear reactor? Was it an inspiration? And tell us how you became interested in the night sky and did you have dark skies in your backyard? Yes, certainly. So in year 11
2: and year 12... At high school, my physics teacher, her name was Mrs. Watt, which we always thought was quite ironic for a physics teacher. She used to jokingly refer to herself as Mrs. Joule per second. <laughs> I wouldn't say the leukocytes reactor was an inspiration to my interest in astronomy, but it certainly kept my interest in science peaked. We used to have school excursions up there, so there was always something new to learn about. It was a bit of a source of worry for young boys with wild imaginations because we'd consider what would happen if it blew up. Would we all be irradiated? Would the Shire be wiped out? But of course, it's a research reactor and it it couldn't have blown up anyhow. One of my teachers at high school, my physics teacher in year 11 and year 12, her name was Mrs Watt, W-A-T-T. She was married to one of the managers out at the reactor, so I had a bit of a link there. And our high school, Engadang High, uh, produced one alumni of interest, which is Glenn Nagel, who the Canberra Deep Space Communications Complex attended Bibilla. Oh, yes. And uh, I met Glenn earlier this year, introduced myself. We were a couple of years apart at school and didn't know each other, but it was great to be able to say I had a link to somebody prominent in the Australian research and astronomy field.
0: Very good. And um, what about the dark skies in your backyard? Yeah, well, I grew up where we were it was the southernmost
2: suburbs of Sydney, so the skies were darker than if we lived closer in. And there's certainly nothing compared to getting out of the city, but looking back, they were quite dark. When I go and visit my mum, who still lives in the same house, and go there at night, you know, there's a lot more air pollute, light pollution, it's very noticeable. And uh, I have to say, the, getting interested in astronomy actually came from one of the teachers at high school. We used to run these activity groups on a Wednesday, and when I was in Year 8, which was 1977, the science master put on a a one-term astronomy group, and a friend and I joined the group, and during the very first session, he challenged us to go outside at night and take a look at what was there, and I did. In a couple of minutes of getting outside, I saw two satellites. On the sky, and their paths were going to cross, and I actually thought they were going to collide. <laughs> and that certainly got me interested
0: in the night sky because you could look up and see little lights, some moving, but most of them not. And there's thousands of them up there. So, tell us about your interest in photography and how that got started. Yeah, when I was 11,
2: my birthday present was a Kodak Instamatic camera. We had a school excursion that was heading off to the snowy mountains. I took that with me and took some pretty horrible photographs looking back. (laughs) And then later on, my mum bought a non-SLR 35 millimetre camera and she used to let me use it. And uh, friends and I would visit the Sydney International Airport and Bankstown Airport to take photographs of aircraft and I'd ride my bike in the Royal National Park, which is right near where I live, and I'd take landscape and flower photography. And then... Got interested in astronomy, as I said, through the the club at the group at school. I think I took my first star trail shot around 1979 using my mum's camera. Now, it was a no name 35 millimeter camera and it had a bulb setting so that you could keep the shutter open as long as you wanted, but it didn't have a socket for a cable release. So, the idea was you would hold the lever down for as long as you wanted the shutter to be open, but that was no help for astronomy with shaky hands. I used to tie a piece of string around the lever and tie that string around the tripod and then take the lens cap off to take my star trail shots. So during year eleven I worked part time as a pharmacy delivery boy and I saved up my pay and bought a thirty five millimeter SLR camera when I was sixteen. I was a photographer for the school magazine and I bought an enlarger with my savings so that I could print black and white photos using our bathroom as a dark room on a few different Friday nights.
0: Fantastic. What great credentials! So you've been in the game and done that transition from chemical to digital photography. And I see you include good astronomical information when you publish some of your nightscapes. So tell us about some of your photos that have been published, please, Doug. Yeah, published or in competitions, I...
2: About 2014, I took myself a long weekend down the south coast where our family had been holidaying since I was about 11, a place called Turos Head, south of Bateman's Bay, with very good dark skies. And there's a nice disused church down there, and I figured I'd try and line up the rising Milky Way with the church and took several photos and uh, entered one of them in a local photo competition down there and actually won the competition. It just turned out that that was the year that the organiser had decided that he didn't want to give prizes for the competition. (laughs) So I had the kudos from that. And some friends had been encouraging me to enter my photos in competitions, particularly the Photo Nightscape Awards, it's called, run out of Paris. I entered a photograph in 2015. It was around about September or October and got an email in November of 2015 to say that I'd come fifth out of 400 entrants from 50 countries. which was quite encouraging. The convener of the competition invited the top 10 place getters to Paris to see an exhibition of the photos. Now, you can imagine that when I suggested to my wife that we go to Paris, she was very interested in that. (laughs) So we actually made the trek. It was the first time I'd been to Europe. And we traveled over there and stayed in an apartment that belongs to a friend of mine and went to the exhibition and I have to say the hospitality of the people was amazing and they were stunned that someone would want to travel all the way from Australia to Paris just to see a photo exhibition. So that was very encouraging and, uh, you know, really inspired me to keep going.
0: Fantastic, Doug. Now, we know a lot of people have got DSLR cameras gathering a bit of dust at home. Let's do a hypothetical shoot now, Doug. Can you tell us how to plan a night shoot to capture the Milky Way? Yes, certainly. Well, the number
2: one thing is you have to be aware of the moon cycle. You don't want to be out trying to take photos of stars and faint nebula and all of the glory of the Milky Way when there's a first quarter through to third quarter moon and particularly a full moon. I have a lot of people say to me, oh I saw the full moon last night and I knew that you'd probably be out taking photos. Well, <laughs> that's about the worst time to do it unless you've set out to take photos of the full moon. So you become familiar with the lunar cycle and you can, when I was a kid you did that from the easy to see calendar that was always on the wall at home. It had the moon phases on it but now there are apps galore, there are Websites, The uh, timeanddate.com is a good one to check to see how the, the Moon's going. And you also need to know where the Milky Way is going to be in the sky at what time of night. And just as the, the Sun and the Moon rise and set each day or appear to rise and set, so too do the stars through the night. So it's important to know where the Milky Way is, where it's going to be in the sky when you go out, if you go out you know, not long after dark, or where it's going to be at midnight or in the wee small hours, and of course that position changes throughout the year. So you realise you have to learn quite a bit, but the learning curve is worth the effort because even if you don't take photos, you stand out there and see what's there with the naked eye, all the wonderful things that you can see in dark skies, you go, yeah, that was worth the effort. So the first thing is the moon, the second thing is to know where the Milky Way and other objects are going to be located and you'd need to know whether you can get access to a place you intend to shoot from. I spend a lot of time looking over maps and I guess these days Google Earth thinking, okay, that looks like a good location, there's a abandoned farmhouse there or there's a windmill nearby and I'd love to shoot the Milky Way with that in the background. But then you get there and find out that the road is a private road, which wasn't shown on the map and and you can't get in anyway. Moon, Milky Way, location, they're all important. Another thing you have to plan around is the weather, and that's the least predictable. We're pretty good at forecasting the weather these days apparently, but I've had plenty of times where I've checked the satellite photos online from the Japanese satellite that's parked over Australia. I've uh, checked apps that have told me what the clouds going to be and I've driven sometimes hundreds of kilometres to turn up to a spot and its cloud. And, of course, the other thing would be if you're planning a shoot, make sure your gear is working, that your batteries are charged, that you have at least one spare memory card with you, that you have a torch so that you can see when you're setting up, particularly that you have a red cover to go over the torch so you don't your really unite vision. I would say they're the main point, but happy to give you any others if that doesn't cover it for you.
0: Fantastic, Doug. Now, your Milky Way shots are fantastic, but what Thank other you. targets are good targets? Uh, are the Magellanic clouds are good things to shoot?
2: Absolutely. We're very spoiled here in the Southern Hemisphere. Not only are we a long way from a lot of the craziness in the Northern Hemisphere, but we have the centre of the Milky Way, O-passes overhead, through the winter months, we have the Magellanic clouds to photograph as well. And a great thing about the large and small Magellanic clouds is they're pretty much visible all year round, of course, with the moon permitting, unless you have a mountain or something on your horizon at the long time of year. They're a favourite target of mine. In fact, I was out last Friday night. I drove a couple of hundred k's from Sydney, got some Milky Way shots, but spent quite a bit of time photographing the large Magellanic cloud because I just find it so beautiful and entrancing. The moon, if you're, you know, either trying to shoot a very thin moon or a full moon. And there seems to be a bit of an unofficial competition among astrophotographers to see who can shoot the thinnest moon. And I think the thinnest one I've seen is from Ian Griffin, who's the director of the Otago Museum in New Zealand. Uh, He posts on Twitter regularly and he shot the moon recently, which was only 2% illuminated. It was less than 24 hours after the new moons. That's a good thing. My favorite full moon shot of mine was one I shot at Cronulla Beach near where I live. It was one of the super moons. And I had a flight tracker app and I could see that the air ambulance was coming in on the flight path to land at Sydney Airport. And I managed to photograph the air ambulance plane right in front of the full moon and you can even see an exhaust plume from the, the plane on the photo. Yeah, Into the summer months, Orion is a favourite, not just of myself, but of lots of photographers because it's a, a beautiful little arrangement of stars and that asterism of the saucepan as I've known it since I was five years old is great. You can pick up, even with a simple shot with the most basic lens that comes with a camera, you can pick up the nebulosity in the handle of the saucepan, which is, of course, M42, the Orion Nebula. And a great shot to go for is to get Orion and the Pleiades and the Hyades all in one shot. I think one other thing to mention, and it's a challenge the further south you live in Australia, is M31, the Andromeda Galaxy. It, where I live or the places I travel to to photograph, it really gets more than 14 degrees above the northern horizon. So that one's always a challenge. but I'm up for the challenge.
0: (laughs) Fantastic. Now, all of those DSLRs out there, they're capable of fabulous shots of a night sky. But you were hinting at this before. What other equipment can make our shoot more effective? Can you give us some basic tips on lenses or tripods and Wi-Fi, cable releases, what sort of torches... What other essential equipment can people bolt on to their DSLR?
2: Certainly. Yeah, well the tripod's a must. You've got to have something to mount the camera on and don't care how sturdy your hands are, you can't shoot a 5 to 30 second long exposure just holding your camera in your hands. And you can try holding your breath but it doesn't work. So a tripod is essential. And, and whatever sort of photography you're interested in, a tripod is probably one of the first items you buy after you buy your camera. Yep. I did see a photo a few years back from someone in the US who put his camera on top of his car and while he was getting something else out. And he actually bumped the shutter button. And when he pulled the memory card out at home, he'd actually taken a photograph of the Andromeda Galaxy because it was straight overhead at the time. But Even he recommended getting a tripod instead of using the roof of your car. And lenses, of course, every camera comes with a lens. And most digital SLRs that you buy, they come with what's referred to as a kit lens, which is usually the cheapest but most effective lens that a manufacturer can bundle in with it. They often come with a focal range from 18 to 55 millimeters. They're fine. Most people want to run off and buy some new lenses straight away, and it's great if you have the money, but I believe in learning with the equipment that you have and being able to get the most out of it before you move on to the next thing. And that said, once you do want to move on past the kit lens, it's best to get a wide-angle lens. Like I mentioned with people saying they expected me to be up taking photos of the moon – Lots of friends and relatives I talk to will say, Oh, I bet you've got some really big lenses to photograph the stars. But totally the opposite. You want a a wide angle lens from somewhere from 14 to about 30 millimeter focal length. And you want one that has a wide aperture or what photographers refer to as a fast lens. You want to be able to let in as much light as you can. Now, with cameras being automatic, they have autofocus and auto-aperture and auto-everything, the most popular lenses amongst sky nice photographers are actually manual lenses. They have manual focus, most of them have manual aperture, and none of them have image stabilization, which is something you always want to have turned off. I have lenses in them. I have a very good 14 millimeter lens from a Korean company called Samyang. I have a 24 millimeter, and I shoot with those two lenses more than anything else. Yep. Something else would be, a, you asked me about this before, is a cable release or some sort of Wi-Fi release so that you don't have to press the button of the camera to get the shot because as soon as you touch the camera to press the button, the camera's going to wobble. It doesn't show up so much in the, the wide-angle like 14mm shots, but the tighter the shot, the more you're going to notice that. Yeah. I actually started off just using the camera's self-timer, sort of and this is what I used to do with my film SLR. That was, you get the shot set up and focused, and then you set the 10 seconds timer, press the button back away from the camera, and by the time that 10 seconds is up, the camera stops shaking, it's nice and stable, and go from there. Now, that said, there are plenty of cabled and wireless remotes available for all of the cameras on the market today. You can even get a few adapters that will plug into the camera and the other ends controlled from your smartphone. One thing I tend to say is don't buy the original manufacturer's cable or remote release. I use Canon cameras and Canon wants a couple of hundred dollars for their most basic remote release for their camera. Yep. Pick up reliable ones for twenty nine dollars on eBay or even local camera stores in Australia, carry them. You do need some way of remotely triggering it, particularly if you want to do time lapse photos where you need a lot of shots fired off in repetition talking with a chap recently who said he got out to his um, shooting location and realised he'd left his remote at home. So he had to sit there for two hours and press the shutter button every 30 seconds. (laughs) One thing that I hadn't heard of until I experienced the the, um, disappointment for myself was dew heaters. These are used by astronomers for their eyepieces to keep them from fogging up in cold and moist weather. And um, I found that I need them on my camera as well, particularly during winter. I had one night where I set up for a two-hour time-lapse, had everything focused properly, batteries charged, memory card was empty, set the camera going, went off to my car for a sleep, and when I got up two hours later, the lens had fogged over, and my shots were ruined. Now, this was actually in January, which is summer, of course, for us in Australia, but When you're living somewhere humid, even in the wee small hours, the humidity can affect the lens. So, Some people just use heat packs that you can buy from a pharmacy or a camping store. They're a a chemical pack, and you squeeze them around and and they'll generate heat. I prefer using some strip heaters, which are a Velcro strip that have little resistors in them. They Velcro around the lens, plug them into a battery, and they'll keep your lens from fogging up quite well that's the main things apart from the camera itself there's always something more to add like sliders or you know panoramic or sorry uh, rotating heads that will let you track the camera across the horizons as shooting but these are the basics i think that i've covered there
0: fantastic doug now you mentioned focusing earlier and focusing can be an issue do you turn Mm. off auto focus how do you focus at night when you're out in the middle of nowhere it, absolutely you turn
2: off autofocus and that's one thing less to remember with the manual focus lenses is that you don't have to remember did I turn off autofocus or not. But yeah, you don't want the camera hunting trying to focus on something. It's not going to do it. If you're lucky and the moon's out, you'll be able to autofocus on that. But for the stars, no, you must definitely turn that off. Another thing to turn off is any optical stabilisation that your lens might have, because that you know, has microscopic movements that happen in the camera's lens when it's trying to stabilize the photo, that can cause the tripod to shake. And so the camera then responds to the shake of the tripod by trying to stabilize the shot more. And you end up with a shot which had little streaks of light rather than dots. every DSLR and and certainly every mirrorless camera has an LCD screen where you can preview your shots and you can... I mean, you can look at them after you've shot them, but you use it to set up the shot. My cameras still have the prism and the mirror, so I use the optical viewfinder built into the camera to compose the shot, but I'm too old now to be able to use that for focus. So that's when I then use the LCD on the back of the camera to focus. Most of them have zoom functions, and I zoom up to 10 times to be able to focus. Unfortunately, my eyes are at the point now where I carry a, a photographer's loop around my neck on a string and I peer through that at the already 10 times magnified image on the back of my screen to focus. Now, a lot of uh, tutorials that will tell you, and certainly I used to do this myself, to point your camera at a bright star and use that to focus on, but I found that it's the faint stars that are more effective, at least for me. Sometimes a, a bright star I might camera might get a bit overwhelmed with the image, and it doesn't give sharp edges, but I find that if there are fainter stars in the image, they'll only come into view when the camera's actually properly focused. Often you can't see them at all until you focus, and then suddenly they pop into your field of view. Now, that works for me. Other people do it in other ways, but yeah, definitely turn off the autofocus and use the live view screen on your camera.
0: That's fantastic, Doug. Now, your photography is famous for the additional interest that you add. So, location, location, location. How do we decide where to do a night shoot? And about adding that lighting to add interest
2: to your shot. Sure. Yeah, now, I mentioned when I, I went down the south coast in 2014 and I used this church in the shot. That was one of the first times I'd done any astrophotography with my digital camera. When I look back, I used to shoot in the film days. A lot of it was just constellations in the middle of a dark sky. And it was the morning I was leaving to go on this trip in 2014. I was reading an article online by a legendary nightscape photographer from the US, named Mike Taylor. And Mike said in this interview to to be a good nightscape photographer, you need to be a good or a decent landscape photographer. And he said, you need to know how to compose a photograph, how to have points of interest in the photo, apart from the shiny bright stars. And it was a very fortunate thing that I read that article because I was headed down there to go and shoot the kind of stuff I used to do on film as a kid. So I found this church and I managed to line it up so that the Milky Way was over. And indeed, the, the photograph from 2015 that I placed in the competition in Paris, that was of another church. There's a lovely sandstone church down the coast, a place called Bedella. And I managed to position the shot so that the Milky Way was above that. So that's a long answer to your short question. But the first thing about location is somewhere with some interesting foreground objects. If you're somebody that lives where there are windmills or in... I know in Northern Victoria, you have those marvellous silos that already have paintings on the side of them. I've seen wonderful nightscape shots with those featured. Interesting trees. I love featuring dead trees in my photos because there's something of the the earth and the sky in both of them. Uh, Interesting structures. It might be uh, a TV tower that the moon's setting behind or... Something like that, we're always looking for places of interest. Unfortunately, there's no register of windmills. I wish there were because I often pour over things on Google Earth, zooming in, trying to see if there's a, a windmill on the property. And I've done a few shots with silos, and I think I've done my share of churches, but always looking for something there. And of course, the key thing is it's got to be somewhere dark. So, what I suggest to people is even if you don't think you're ready to go out and shoot, Winning nightscape photos. Just go out at night and take photographs anyway of the sky, so that you can see what the light pollution's like in the area. I've shot some photos again, harking back to Touros. Turos. I have mean, been holidaying there for forty years, so I love the place. But I shot a photo there a few years back. It was in summer, and Orion was it was late at night, and Orion was just starting to fall down the western sky. When I looked at the photo on my computer the next day, I could see a yellow glow on the horizon. in it. And I looked at a map, and it was actually Canberra, and it was a 120 kilometres line of sight to Canberra. But I was picking up the light pollution from it in that shot. So definitely go out and take some shots. They don't have to be good. They don't even have to be in focus just to work out if there's light pollution in the area.
0: That's amazing Doug and in terms of finding windmills you might want to look at CFA maps because all the CFA maps we've got for our region here they show all the dams and that's where all the windmills tend to be next to a dam. So That might be a tip for finding more windmills just check out the CFA maps. Well thank you for that it's nice to be
2: receiving Well, I'm giving out information. I love that. I'm always learning. I've told my children that if I ever get to a point where I say that I don't think I need to learn anymore, they're allowed to hit me or bury me, whichever comes first.
0: (laughs) Uh, Good advice, but I don't think I'll try that with mine. Now, what's the best way to get the correct exposure, to get that nice dark background sight, to get the best exposure time, to get the best ISO range And some people use the 500 rule. What is the best way to get that, so your photo's not under or overexposed? Sure. Well, the the good old
2: trial and error method has to be the best. And uh, one of the things you'd asked me about before the interview was about bracketing the shots. And bracketing occurs in all kinds of photography. And that's where you'll take a number of photos of the same scene, but you vary your settings as you do so. Now, that way you can look at what's worked and what hasn't. There are plenty of websites, plenty of online tutorials where people will recommend how long an exposure you use for which lens. So typically with a, a 14 millimeter lens on my camera, I'll shoot somewhere between 20 to 30 seconds. That lets enough light into the camera, particularly from the stars, but you don't see any or much trailing of the stars due to the Earth's rotation. Yep. Uh, that bracket between 20 and 30 I arrived at by reading what other photographers do but also by just taking a lot of shots myself and working it out. There is the what's called the, the, the rule of 500 or the 500 rule that a lot of astrophotographers use and that's where to determine the length of the photo you take the focal length of the lens that you're using in millimetres and you Divide that by 500. So if you're using, say, if you had a 100 millimeter lens, which is quite a long focal length for this kind of stuff, but it's simple math, you would only use a five second exposure at the most. If you're shooting with a, a 24 millimeter lens, which is close enough to 25, you would then say 500 divided by 25 and come out with a 20 second exposure. I actually use what's called the 400 rule and that's that you take the number divided by 400 and that means you tend to use a shorter exposure time than you would with the 500 rule but I found I get much less trailing in the stars using that. In the 14mm lens it doesn't really matter because it's such a wide angle that anywhere up to even 40 seconds you often won't see any trailing in the stars. I like to push things a bit and I use a 50 millimeter lens on my camera from time to time without any tracking of the sky and so if I say 400 divided by 50 that gives me a maximum of 8 seconds I can shoot for. In terms of the sensitivity of the camera which is referred to as the ISO of the shot most astrophotography that I've done and indeed the, the people I respect and admire online they usually shoot from 3200 ISO up to 12,800 but 6,400 tends to be the sweet spot. There are other methods of determining the exposure length and the ISO. Uh, Aaron Priest who's a a wonderful nightscape photographer from the US has been posting quite a bit of info online. He has tables of the various cameras available and their lenses and what the best focal length, exposure time and ISO settings are for those. You can always do the bracketing where you go, okay, I'll shoot this one for 20 seconds, this one for 25, this one for 30, or keep the exposure time the same and just bracket the ISO and change that. It's quite a contrast. I think back when I was shooting film in my teen years, I used to stump up my money to buy some fast, in inverted commas, photographic film, which was known as Kodak Tri-X, and it had an ISO of 400 which we thought was a fast film, and now I regularly shoot at 6400. I did some shots Friday night shooting at 12800. Sony's cameras and indeed Canon's and Nikons now are catching up. They can shoot at ISOs of 256,000 now. There's a bit of noise there, but they're getting a lot better at
0: it. Fantastic we've now got enough information from you to go out there and take some decent shots. Can you tell us about your biggest mistake and your proudest achievement, well, apart from Paris?
2: Sure. Well, I think my biggest mistake was when I bought a new lens before that trip I talked about in 2014, going down the coast to shoot that church. I'd only taken delivery of the lens a few days before, and this was one of the Korean-made... Manual focus lenses. Now, I'd always expected and been taught that when you line up the focusing ring on your camera to the infinity mark, that the camera is set to infinity and will (laughs) focus properly on stars. So I went out and shot a whole night's worth of photographs, and the next night, it was a Friday night and a Saturday night, and I was looking at them, and instead of stars, little points of light, I had fuzzy balls in a lot of the photographs. And that's when I learned that the infinity point on your lens isn't necessarily the infinity point of the lens. (laughs) And there's a few of us online joke about uh, infinity lotto where uh, we'll have the same lens and then you compare to see where your infinity mark is. I have a lens where the infinity point of the lens actually lines up with the three-meter focus mark on the barrel of the lens. Uh, usually the, cheap, the cheaper the lens, the less consistent they are between models, but I spent all that time talking about focusing manually, and uh, I know that from bitter experience, that it's worth it.
0: <laughs> I've had exactly the same experience, Doug.
2: Yes, that's right. The old Infinity Lotto. It's something I don't want to be a winner at, that's for <laughs> sure. Proudest achievement, if I can... I'm going to have two that blend together. I I had an Instagram account a few years back just for general personal things, and my eldest daughter texted me one day when she was between lectures at uni and said, oh, I've been thinking you should set up an Instagram account just for your nightscape photography. And I'd been toying with the name Nightscapades, which is what I'm known as on most social media, and it's, you know, escapades at night. And I kicked it off, and... Two years later to the day I had twenty thousand followers. And that was, you know, that was a good achievement. But along the way, the thing that kept me going was um you know, it's nice getting compliments from people saying, Hey, that's a great photo. But it was when people would say, Oh, you know what? I tried this for myself last night and I was amazed or you have inspired me to get out and do this for myself. That's my proudest achievement. And it was just today when I posted a photo of the large Magellanic Cloud, someone from overseas who can't see the Magellanic Clouds where than it is said, this is a photo I'm going to look at when I'm feeling down and I need a happy place to go to. And I thought, wow, that, that is a proud achievement for me. I love doing that. I could, I could lose all my followers or most of them, but provided I was still inspiring someone, I'd be happy with that.
0: And we sincerely hope that this episode does exactly the same thing, Doug. Now, you mentioned earlier about challenge. Would you like to set a challenge uh, for our listeners, an achievable challenge for listeners who might be, first of all, who might be a first-timer? And then what sort of challenge would you set for someone who's a more experienced nightscaper?
2: Yeah, okay. I I saw that when you sent me the the, uh, idea of what we're going to be talking about. I think for a first-timer, it would be go out and shoot a great shot of the Milky Way just with the equipment you have, the kit lens that comes with the camera, a basic tripod, practice enough with your camera in the daylight to know what to do and go out and, uh, and shoot a photo that you're happy with and that you feel that, you could show someone else to and they would say, wow. Now that might be a bit nebulous, excuse the pun, but that's how I learned. It was knowing my equipment well enough to go out and just give it a try with what I had. But the more experienced nightscaper, um, there's so many things that, that I could set a challenge for, but one thing I've been pushing myself with lately is to get some faint objects that are hard to photograph. As I mentioned before, the, the Andromeda Galaxy, it, you know, it's rarely high above the horizon in the places I shoot, but I'm trying more and more to get some decent photos of that that I could even blow up. Or to shoot something you've never shot before, I you know, often will go out, take a photo of the Milky Way core, and think, okay, I'm happy with that, and then come back and go, well... Yeah, you know, I've done a lot of those, something different. So these more experienced people look at photos that you think, wow, I could never shoot that, and then go out and shoot it. (laughs) You You can't challenge yourself with something you've already done. You've got to challenge yourself with something you don't think you could do.
0: Fantastic, Doug. Now, I've seen your nightscapes on quite a few places in the digital world. Could you tell our listeners where you reckon where's the best place to find your nightscapes on the interwebs?
2: Sure, and thank you for the opportunity to do that. It's nice having such a forum to do so. The place I post to the most, and it was because of the success I had, is on Instagram. Now, I know it's tiny on a mobile phone, but it's been a consistently rewarding place for me on Instagram I'm known as night scapades that's the word night with scapades straight after it you can look at Instagram on a PC or on a tablet so you're not limited to squinting at the phone and as I say that's the place I post to most commonly I try to post once a day I rarely get it but that's yeah that's it for me for the most of it um, I'm on Facebook. I have a page called Nightscapade, So if you just look for that in the Facebook search bar, you'll find it there. I tend to post there as regularly as I do on Instagram. I have a website, nightscapade.com, but being self-employed doing other things and also having a family and being driven to get out and actually photograph things at night, I haven't actually updated that for a couple of years. So um, that's a bit of an embarrassment. But I, I mainly work Instagram, and a wonderful group on in Facebook, which is where you and I, I think, first got to know each other, Brendan, is the Nightscape Photographers Australia group. It's a closed group that you can apply to join. We just kicked over the benchmark or the uh, landmark of 6,500 members over the last weekend. The thing I like the most about that group is there's so much encouragement on there. There's a great number of people that share their images and... I love seeing what other people come up with because they're in places that I'm not, they're in, they've got gear that I don't have and they see things in the sky that just aren't there when I go and look. So look for me by name, Doug Ingram, there on the Nightscape Photographers Australia group or indeed just Google Nightscape and see what you come up with.
0: Fantastic and it's always great to be part of a supportive community. Absolutely.
2: I've learned so much and felt so encouraged by the people on the, the groups, particularly the Nightscape Photographers Australia group.
0: Okay, Doug, look, we'll get you back in a few months in perhaps January or February next year when our night skies are full of dust and heat haze and tremors and turbulence. And we'll get you to tell us about post-production, about stacking, printing, publishing, and all of that information, people have had quite a, a bit of time to go and do some experiments and try out your challenges. So we'll talk again in a couple of months. Thank you so much, Doug Ingram. Your DSLRs, very much, Dust off your DSLRs, folks. Indeed, and get out there and click away. Excellent. See ya, and thanks, Doug.
2: Thank you, Brendan. Cheers, mate. That's great.
0: Now let's cross to Adelaide to speak with Ian Astroblog Musgrave to find out what's up doc. Hello Ian. Hello Brandon. Great to be talking with you Ian. And happy equinox.
1: It was a very happy equinox indeed. I oh got it managed to get out and see moon rising and Venus, Jupiter and Mars becoming uh, brighter in the twilight sky before the clouds came over. so that was quite nice.
0: Very good. So Ian, tell us, what's up in the sky for this episode?
1: What's up in the sky for this episode? Well, one of the nice things of this episode is that Mercury comes back into the evening sky high enough for us to see it outside of the twilight. So that means we'll be able to see all four bright planets in the evening sky relatively easily. But what will also be happening is we'll be also able to see at least one of the dimmer planets, Neptune, when the bright planets are all above the horizon. Sadly Uranus is at, is at opposition this month but it's not really visible until the Venus and Mercury have set so we won't be able to see all planets in the evening sky at one time, but if you are patient, you'll be able to see all of the bright planets and then the two dim planets are relatively easily. Very good. The Moon returns to the planets, so we'll see the crescent moon climbing the ladder of planets again over this period of time. So the crescent moon visits Mercury on October the 10th, October the 11th, or Venus and at this time if trying even a small telescope on Venus you'll see that Venus is a crescent itself so you'll have the crescent Venus and crescent moon not too far away sadly uh, they won't be close enough to be able to see easily together in a, uh, a high enough uh, objective to see both of those crescents but it'll be nice to know that the uh, crescent Venus is close to the crescent moon find that you'll be able to see Mercury, Venus, the present moon, and Jupiter. That will look very nice indeed. And then on the 15th, the waxing moon will be very close to Saturn. So that will be a, a nice thing to watch over the coming week. So, again, if you've got a body of reflective water somewhere uh, for, for the, this coming time, it will be very nice to see the lineup of Mercury, Venus, and Jupiter reflected in the body of water, and then have the reflection of the Moon coming up over the period of 10 to 12 October. The other thing that you can do, because the uh, present Moon being relatively close to Venus, on the 11th, is you can look at Venus in the daytime. Now, Venus has passed its maximum brilliance, and after this week, Venus will begin to sink towards the horizon. But Venus is still very bright, when the crescent moon is close to it so it'll be a magnitude about minus 4.4 and so if you can find crescent venus in the daylight look to the left of the moon and you should be able to see a bright dot which is venus it's best to wait until the sun is uh, is relatively low in the horizon and make sure it's blocked out by a large object such as a building or a wall or a hill or something so that you can't accidentally see the sun and damage your eyesight and if you're using binoculars, definitely don't start looking for Venus close to the Moon, if the Sun is not completely blocked out by some very large object, which you, see, you can't accidentally see the Sun through the binoculars. But so that's the most spectacular things that are coming up in the evening sky. Very good. Of course, I can't leave out either Saturn or Mars. Saturn is still uh, in the half of the Milky Way, and it's coming closer and closer to M22 so if you look at Saturn and binoculars you should be able to see it, and M22 just together but also this means that if you sweep up from Saturn you'll still see the Chippard and Lagoon nebulas within a binocular distance of Saturn as well so it's a very beautiful area of sky. Mars is still in Aquarius and Mars is rapidly moving away from us now, if you've been following this in a telescope, you'll see it trunk considerably over the past few weeks. It's still big enough to see some details on disk through small telescopes, and the, now that the dust storm has gone away, you can see some quite decent details on it. Mars is approaching solstice, so on October 16th, we'll be at solstice, uh, where it will be heading into northern winter and southern summer. So you may be able to see the northern polar caps. Mars has still got a bit of a show for us if you've got a telescope. And even if you don't have a telescope, it's still very bright, very red, and definitely dominating the uh, northeastern horizon at the moment. Excellent. Now, Neptune is almost impossible for you to find unless you've got these star maps. But Uranus is interesting. Uranus is actually bright enough to be visible, but the unaided eye in dark sky locations. This magnitude's around 5.7 and so the threshold for some decent eyesight under a dark sky should be magnitude 6. So it's, it's potentially easy to see. Will it look a slightly blue colour? No it won't it, it, um, unless you've got really good eyesight uh, just to the innated eye it will just look dim and white. Through a good telescope it'll look slightly bluish but only slightly bluish and it'll be a relatively featureless disk. If you're up at about one o'clock in the morning, if you look off to the northeast, you'll see the easily visible A shape of Taurus the Bull. If you follow the eye of Taurus the Bull off to the north, you'll see the three stars that form Aries, the ram, and a second brightest star in Aries. If you look up from that by about a hand span, with your binoculars, Uranus will be just up from the beta star of Aries.
0: That sounds great because I've got very dark skies zoom and I have never seen that
1: planet before, so I'll go out and have a look. There's lots going on in the sky. I should also mention uh, comet 21P. Now, 21P, by the time this podcast goes out, will have faded down to magnitude 8, which is just at the threshold of binocular visibility but it's going to be passing close to a number of interesting clusters as I mentioned in our last podcast. The comet's passing through the Milky Way and has been passing next to some very interesting objects so between the 7th and 12th of October it will pass next to the open cluster M50 and then a bunch of small open clusters so it will look very nice in that area if you have a a decent telescope you'll the encounter with m50 will be will be quite nice around about that time very good yeah Uh, the other thing that's happening is we've actually we've got a meteor shower so the new moon is is roughly is on the 9th and the 10th is the peak of one of the torrid streams this uh, torrid peak is around the 10th there's not very many of them, so if you go out, you, and again you'll need to go out early in the morning, say around about two to three to four in the morning and look at, er, around the area of Taurus. Of course Taurus, uh, the A shape of the head of Taurus will be very distinctive. And of course, uh, and off to the left of that will be the Orion, again very distinctive, the belt of Orion, or what, what we in Australia call the saucepan will be a very good guide to where you're looking so if you're up early in the morning on the 10th the sky will be really dark without the moon and you may see one or two of the taurids the there um they're relatively slow bright meteors but don't expect to see a lot of them you may may see one every 15 minutes or so very good everyone loves meteors they do indeed they do indeed He's a bit excited now that I'm home again. Can you explain who Archie is, please, Ian? Um, Archie is our galar. He's um, a very uh, happy uh, galar. He likes, he likes to screech. He likes to eat keyboards. He likes to chew through internet cables. <laughs> very good. Do you have a tangent for us for this episode? I do, I do. The hopping robots on the asteroid Rugu. I don't know about you, but I stayed up far too late, refreshing my phone, trying to find out if the the robots had landed. We were following following the uh, initial um, launch of the robots, and we were getting quite frequent updates, and then all of a sudden, Jackson went silent. They've confirmed they're on the surface. And they've they've come back with some really interesting photographs, including one taken mid-hop. But that's not really what I wanted to talk about. One of the things that the asteroid mission is going to do, as well as have uh, robots hopping over and uh, sampling the surface, is it's going to try and sample some asteroid dust and return it. Now the surface of dust on uh, planets uh, and asteroids and comets is really really interesting and one of the things that happened in the early Apollo Missions, they wanted to understand the effect of the of the vacuum and, and dust on the lunar surface on spacecraft, and so Apollo 12 landed very close to the Surveyor instrument, and what they and the idea was they go to the Surveyor instrument, take some materials off, bring them back to Earth to study to see how the um, space environment affected the uh, spacecraft, okay. and one of the astronauts. first went over to look at the surveyor radio back and said is it supposed to be brown and everyone goes what because the surveyor was painted white and came back that it was it was brown and when they uh, looked at it they noticed that the surveyor panels had been impacted by dust and most of that dust had come from the landing of the spacecraft Uh, dust had been blasted off uh, so vigorously by the spacecraft landing that it effectively sandblasted the surveyor, but that's not the most interesting story. In fact, they the, the spacecraft was with light brown, except where bolts had shadowed the surface from the dust kicked up by the lunar rover, and where the lunar lander, and where the the uh, objects had shadowed the surface of the surveyor, it was even darker brown. And so, what had happened? The, the that uh, over time. The uh, Surveyor was constantly being bombarded by little bits of space dust and, and moon dust, and going uh, darker and darker and darker. And when the Apollo 12 landed, the dust it blasted off, sand blasted the old dust off, effectively cleaning off the surface of Surveyor, which was really quite an amazing thing. Very good, and thank you very much,
0: Ian Astroblog Musgrave.
1: No worries. Thank you very much, Brendan, for allowing me to guide people around the sky. Catch you later, mate. Bye. Bye. Next up, the
0: news. (whistles) First up, from Rxiv. Radio astronomers have been searching for slower pulsars using the low-frequency array, LOFAR, an unusual radio telescope located mostly in the Netherlands, but with parts scattered across Western Europe. LOFAR doesn't combine pictures from its different arrays in real time, as most array telescopes do, but instead sends all its detector signals to a single hub, which digitizes the data into a single huge picture. On September 4, a group of researchers, led by Chai Min Tan of Jodrell Bank Centre for Astrophysics in Manchester, UK, Announced in a paper published on rxiv.org that they'd found the slowest spinning pulsar ever, rotating at a leisurely 23.5 seconds per revolution. Other ground-based observatories, including the Green Bank Telescope, Lovell Telescope, and the N- Nansay Telescope, were subsequently able to verify the pulsar's existence. Theoretical physicists are now looking at possible models that could explain the mechanisms at work in this pulsar which really just shouldn't exist at this speed of rotation, given that most pulsars rotate at a blistering speed, up to 714 revolutions per second. Finally, a slight change in scheduling of our next episode. Next week, your host is interstate and taking an astro tour to conduct a series of interviews with researchers and directors at the Parks Dish, Siding Spring Observatory, ATCA at Narrabri, Mount Stromlo Observatory near Canberra, and the NASA CSIRO Deep Space Network Tracking Station at Tidbinbilla in New South Wales. As a result, We will delay publication of our next episode by one week. So, our next episode will be on Friday, the 26th of October. So, see you in three weeks.